All right. The opening. Hmm. <laughs> you had a question, and I'm curious what the question is. Oh, so I was I was reading through Deuteronomy 9 again, and I was looking at the part where they make the golden calf, and I was like, why did they choose a calf out of all the things they could have chosen? What was it about a calf? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. That question and more will be answered on this episode of the podcast. Welcome. This is the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfair's Christian Church. And I've got with me in the studio... Ashley Wakefield. Hey! I feel like this has become like our traditional opening now, and so I'm trying to change things up. Switch it up. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um... One day, I think I'm going to have you do the opening. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Turn in the table. Turn the tables off. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, come along for the ride. We're going to be diving into Deuteronomy chapter 9. So this episode, we're diving into um, chapter nine of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, If you've been with us up to this point, you know that um, we are working with a people group that are the sons of the Exodus generation. That's the generation that was uh, delivered from Egypt and taken all the way to Mount Sinai, where um, famous events happen that you've probably seen in Hollywood movies before. And... uh, all that crazy cool stuff happens, but then the people group decide to be um, uh, very obstinate and stubborn, and the word in this passage, at least, that'll get used a lot is stiff-necked, which I might talk about a little bit um, if we have time. Um, they uh, make God and Moses so um, uh, frustrated that eventually God just decides to send them into the wilderness to uh, spend the next 40 years of their life just wandering around in the wilderness, relying on God to supply them with manna, um, while essentially most of that older generation dies off and only their very young children um, get to come into the land. At this point, um, Moses then takes the uh, younger generation after that older generation dies off and takes them all the way up to the very... um, beginnings of the land of Canaan and they're looking out over the land that will be theirs and Moses decides to give them one last final speech um, slash really book of what they are to uh, do once they enter into the land what are they to follow what are they to keep their mind on and this really is a book that is focused on um, not just um, the commands of God that's specifically Leviticus focuses a lot more on just kind of like what they're actually supposed to do as far as like religion goes and uh, how that works in their everyday lives and things of that nature. This is more of a book of like expounding on that and focusing in on what their hearts um, really uh, should be like as they are following all of the laws that have been laid out in the um, 
uh, former books. And so uh, this chapter in particular is, again, kind of a historical recap of a lot of where they came from, all for the purpose of uh, really um, transforming their hearts. And I talk about this a lot. Um, it's kind of hard in this culture today because um, we have this very one general, uh, one generation kind of mindset where like we're... I, I, I get the sense, especially in America and Western culture, that like we sort of imagine we are the only people that have ever lived on the earth <laughs> and like our problems are distinctly our problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, like history is kind of just something you learn on the side if you are kind of a geek or a nerd that just likes that kind of old stuff. And uh, if you go and learn that kind of stuff, you're probably going to be a teacher. And otherwise, there's not really a lot of value in learning history as a topic. And uh, I will say that the book of Deuteronomy should challenge you if that's kind of your mindset because um, the book of Deuteronomy is very uh, blatantly pulling back to historical moments in this people's life as a way forward to learn in their present. And it's their history that uh, influences and instructs and teaches them how they are to be. And I really think that you could actually teach like an entire course using Deuteronomy as kind of like your evidence for why history matters um, and why it's very important. Cause that's really what Moses is doing. And this is another chapter of um, the history of the Israelites being used as a point to something really powerful that we're going to dive into in this chapter. <laughs> it's going to be a pretty negative point uh, for sure. Um, but it is a point nonetheless. And so um, uh, one of the reasons I actually picked Deuteronomy as a book um, to dive into, whereas like I could have picked like Leviticus or Numbers would mm-hmm. have been good books to pick as well. One of the reasons I picked Deuteronomy was because it's it does a great job of just sort of recapping the story within itself, you know, and I don't have to like go through a lot of like explanation of the recap a lot of the times because <laughs> it kind of does it for me. And uh, so it's a, it's a good book to kind of jump into as like a new reader of the Bible and specifically these harder books to read um, because you can really just uh, read it as if you were one of these people um, that hadn't heard a lot of this stuff, that hadn't heard the stories of the Exodus, that hadn't really understood a lot of those things and have Moses sort of get to explain it to you in the same way. So um, it's great for that reason. And um, I'm excited to kind of dive into what Moses um, has to teach um, this generation long, long time ago and what that can mean for us today. Did you have any thoughts on the chapter, Ashley, before we jump into it? Um, No, I'm just excited to get into it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out, 
before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people, whom you brought out of the Egypt, have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them, and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone, so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord. For forty days and forty nights I ate no bread and drank no water, because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so arousing His anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for He was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder, as fine as dust, and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Terabah, at Massah, and at Kibroth, Hata'ava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance, that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, 
your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. All right. So, um, like I said, we open up with uh, a bit of a historical recap here. But Mm -hmm. before we even dive into that, there's a bit of kind of more explanation of um, an episode we did two episodes ago, which was um, probably the hardest episode we'll do in the book of Deuteronomy, at least for me. Um, we talked about holy war and a lot of like the reasoning behind mm-hmm. God doing holy war. And we get a little bit more of the reason here um, at the very opening of this chapter that I thought was really good, just uh, kind of more clarification on everything. And this is something that uh, I will say as far as like comparing like holy wars that have happened uh, since this old one and uh, since this time, uh, none of them have kind of had this kind of statement or clarification statement. Um, generally, uh, when Christians even do holy war, um, they usually see themselves as like all that. And they see themselves as like a, a people group that is bringing light to the rest of the nations. I think you can kind of use examples of the Crusades and how they saw themselves in that light. Um, you could even see that in how like... Um, uh, Spain and uh, what was the other country? Um, uh, they had this like, uh, uh, really, I guess it's England, Spain, England, Portugal, yeah. all those different places kind of settled the the West. Um, and they had this um, word that they used called manifest destiny of how they were all that. And they were bringing like um, uh, refinement and spiritual enlightenment to these um, really like, uh, barbarian nations in the West. Um, all of that is not the mindset you get here. Um, as a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite here. You see, um, even though they are going to abound in holy war, the mindset is y'all are terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I wish I had known, because I had, I had been reading this book called Flood and Fury. That's like the short version of the title. It's a long-winded title, but it's by Matthew Lynch. And he talks about... Um, those difficult topics in the Old Testament that we often don't like to discuss, but then I love to bring up. And so um, he talked about this concept of, which I didn't notice and I wish I had known it then, but mm-hmm. this kind of like this idea that when they went into the nation of um, the, the Canaanites during that chapter, that they didn't really actually kill all the Israelites because there's some specific instructions that God is giving them about, well, you know, don't marry them. Don't allow your daughters to marry their sons. Don't give your sons to their daughters. And he's like, well, you can't follow those instructions if all the people are dead. Yeah. And so, you know, that, and also the fact that he gets very specific about destroying their altar. So it's mainly like, um, the chapter is what they're doing in that particular chapter anyway is like they're destroying their altars and tearing down the statues that they've built to these other gods so there's a really big emphasis so much on that not so much on killing the people mm, yeah when i wish i had known that because i never made that connection and i was like i wish i had read that when we did the chapter so that i would have known and i was like that's actually a really good point like god's not going to tell them well don't give your sons to their daughters and their daughters to their sons if they're going to go and kill them because you can't marry a corpse you know so, yeah that's a really and, great point and so he was just like they're not so much going in there to kill all the people it's more so to destroy the idols and i'm sure that maybe people may have died in the process possibly but it's just that that wasn't the main goal the main goal was to get rid of the idols and destroy the idols so it was yeah 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 i think um uh if this is the same guy matthew lynch actually does a podcast that's my favorite podcast anywhere it's called on script and mm-hmm. uh um if it's the same guy which i think it is um he does a podcast with another Matthew, actually, Matthew <laughs> Bates, um, and they do a podcast every week um, where they interview some of the most um, impressive biblical scholars in the mm. field. And uh, he actually has done an episode on 
uh, Old Testament violence, and uh, it's a really good episode. So I may link that in the show notes um, just so that you guys can go and check them out because, yeah. one, they're way better at what they do than uh, I am for sure. Um, they have, like, doctorates, and, like, mm. they're really, really, like, advanced in their field, so they know Hebrew and Greek like the mm. back of their hand and have written really impressive books that, you know, I could spend podcasts talking about. But, um, yeah, I'd definitely go and check out um, Matthew Lynch and Matthew Bates' podcast on script. It's it's a great, great resource if you're really wanting to get into the weeds. I will warn you, um, they're a little um, uh, dense. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's definitely more uh, for people that uh, just, like, live and breathe um, a lot of the nerdy kind of academic circle kind of arguments. So um, if you're someone that's just kind of starting out, uh, I wouldn't start out there. Um, start with the Bible Project. Mm-hmm. But if you really want, like really, really dense stuff, um, definitely check them out. Um, and I love that point. I do think that that's true. And, um, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think in this, this, uh, specific passage, really focusing in on, um, just how, uh, the Anakites are kind of the scary, uh, thing. And I talked about that a, a, a while ago that the giants, um, more than anything are kind of one of the main reasons for, um, such a holy war to happen in the first place. Um, the, these giants, um, may even have been like the offspring of the Nephilim. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they were, um, uh, the Nephilim were, uh, something that God, uh, had never intended to have happen. And it's, they're the offspring of these demonic angels. And so, uh, they definitely need to be wiped out, um, in a sense. And, uh, so, and that kind of goes back to a theme that God has always, um, kind of established, which is that, um, from the Genesis one, each person should be according to his or her own kind. Um, animals should be according to uh, their own kind. And that comes up in Genesis one repeatedly each time. So having like an intermarriage between a man and an angel is kind of, mm. kind of not each according to their own kind. And, um, uh, you'll actually see that get, uh, recycled in, um, the Levitical law code with animals that, um, part the hoof and uh, chew the cud is the old uh, King James passage. And uh, if they kind of don't do one, but do the other, then um, they're unclean essentially. Um, And it's sort of like all of these like logical framework is that like each animal should um, have a distinctive marker about it that makes it according to its own kind. And uh, anytime that animal has a uh, like kind of a, 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 distinctive factor about it that makes it um uh, more uh like ambiguous as to what um what kind of classification it belongs to that's when it becomes unclean um which is also why by the time you get to like daniel um in daniel chapter seven there's these four beasts that are uh come out of the sea and they've got like the head of an ox and the Mm -hmm. the like body of like a lion and all these different things and it's also again kind of going back to that idea of they're not according to their own kind but they're kind of divergent in so many different ways they have four different um beast kinds all kind of um uh meshed into one um and that's not good and so uh, it's it, it's something to th- keep in mind, at least as we work through this, is just um, that's one of the reasons why the Anakites and all of these giant uh, nations um, kind of get this really severe kind of brutal um, uh, uh, pronouncement of judgment, I guess I should say. 
And I did want to bring this up. It was the verse before that one, um, which I'm really glad you talked about that because that was a really good point, especially about the animals. <laughs> but um, the part where it talks about um, to go and dispossess the nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. So that verse being connected to also another thing in Genesis, which is another common thing that a lot of people know in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. So mm, the yeah. Tower of Babel, when they're building up this tower, because God gives them the instruction to, you know, be multiply and, and spread across the earth. But these people do not want to spread across the earth they want to stay in this one place and they want to build up this tower to elevate their own name and there was like this information i was reading i think it's called a ziggurat or however you pronounce it but it was like this concept that happened a lot in um, babylonian and mesopotamian cultures where they would build these really high towers because they believed that these towers touched heaven and that whatever gods or goddesses were in heaven would come down to that tower so they were trying to reach a heavenly place when they were doing this and so you see them kind of doing this thing where they're trying to reach like this heavenly place and trying to stay isolated and create an old name for themselves. And of course, you know, God disperses them and he scatters them by creating their own language. And then they have to break off by the language that they all speak because they don't all speak the same language anymore. And so like this idea where you see God basically doing the same thing for them that they were trying to do way back in the book of Genesis. And it's just the only thing is that they're not doing it themselves. And I think that was kind of the concept that God was trying to get them to understand is that this great thing that you want to have, these long, big tower with these high walls is what I want you to have. But I don't want you to build it yourself because if you're building it yourself, then it becomes like this sort of idolize. Like you're idolizing yourself or idolizing one another. And it's like, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to let me let you win the victory and let me give you these high towers that you're trying to build instead of trying to do it yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually a theme that will uh, get picked up in uh, the next book, Joshua. Um, Cause what's the first city that uh, they uh, deal with is Jericho. Jericho. And I think I ever, one of the, everyone listening to this podcast probably grew up uh, in some context here in the story of uh, the walls of Jericho coming, coming, uh, coming, coming. Uh, how do I say this? Uh, come tumbling down. There we go, man. Coming, coming. <laughs> my, my tongue tied there. But uh, yeah, um, that's uh, one of the huge moments. And I think um, this is kind of a foretelling of that moment in some sense of uh, just um, the, the city that was known for having the tallest of walls um, is the first to kind of topple mm-hmm. um, when Joshua kind of comes on the scene. Um, yeah, and I, I guess I just wanted to bring up this other quick thing that um, I was looking at the concept of scattering a lot because when I was looking at that verse and like connecting it to Genesis 11 and also Gen- there's a verse in Genesis 9 where it talks about what's going to happen before um, Genesis, 11, Genesis 11 gets here about how like the sons of no of um, the sons of Noah, the three sons of Noah, mm-hmm. their descendants get scattered across you know the world. And it mentions that before the Tower of Babel gets there. And so like this concept of scattering, which kind of um, the word that's being used there, like in Genesis 9, Genesis 11, like there are two different words where they have the same basically have the same median Hebrew but it's the idea of scattering it's not just spreading out but it's the idea of being crushed and broken and yeah. it's like this concept of like when God is scattering something, it's not just spreading things apart, but it's kind of like uh, when something is crushed and broken, it naturally scatters. And so you kind of see that kind of thing happening when God is executing judgment. But then you see like the Israelites here at the beginning of Deuteronomy 9 are basically going to be doing that to another nation. So God was using that as sort of like a form of judgment for what they were doing. But then now God is allowing them to execute that same judgment against other nations. Yeah, yeah. There's actually some really good work on this word, uh, this word in particular, um, from a scholar named N.T. Wright, who I've brought up many times on this podcast. And Wright makes a good case that um, scattering um, 
uh, is related uh, pretty hardcore to mm-hmm. the idea of exile um, and that um, when you get scattered, you are exiled. And um, the concept of or even the theme of exile is something that happens like in the Garden of Eden, for mm-hmm. instance, where um, Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden and can't get back there. Um, and then further on, when Cain kills his brother Abel, He's exiled to the east, east of Eden, um, and uh, then starts his own um, city um, in in the east, uh, away from uh, the rest of the people. And then, like you're saying, um, they end up getting uh, Noah's family ends up getting scattered or exiled after um, their. Uh, uh, really interesting uh, event that happens after Noah um, drinks too much wine and all of that goes down. I won't get into that, but um, uh, as a result, their family kind of breaks apart as well. Um, And by the time you get to uh, Deuteronomy here, um, you'll see that um, scattering comes up again at the very end as part of the cursings that God's going to give to the people of Israel if they don't follow his law and don't follow after what Moses is teaching them to do. um, They are actually going to get scattered and uh, so Wright makes a big case that um, uh, scattering um, is sort of the Old Testament equivalent to exile, which mm-hmm. um, is a really cool, cool thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you could honestly spend like a whole podcast on the topic of exile. And yeah. uh, I think even the Bible Project did a whole series on exile. So that's something to check out as well. Um, so uh, we really kind of wrap all that up by him kind of driving home the point that um, will kind of be the main focus of this episode in a lot of ways is um, just how bad the Israelites are. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting to really think about this um, from the new Testament perspective, which is kind of what I want to like ground us in a little bit um, because uh, this is really echoing a lot of Romans four for me, Um, a lot Mm -hmm. of Romans four and the idea of um, uh, in Romans four, Paul really kind of, drives home a singular point to the people in Rome saying, um, none of this happened because you were righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that you were still in your sin basically. And then God did all of this stuff. And, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, I really believe that Paul had Deuteronomy out in front of him when he wrote the book of, mm-hmm. uh, of Romans and that you really won't understand, um, Romans unless you read Deuteronomy. That's another reason I, I, actually chose um, this book to go through is um, it's kind of a precursor to um, Romans in a lot of ways. And honestly, if I would say, I I don't know this for certain, but I have noticed more quotes in Romans to the book of Deuteronomy than pretty much any other book in the Old Testament. Um, There seems to be that Paul is quoting more from Deuteronomy um, than any other book in that letter. Um, And uh, it'd be interesting. I haven't actually like tallied them, but uh, as far as just like when I'm like reading through Romans, um, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's from Deuteronomy. Oh, that's from Deuteronomy. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of them. And uh, it's something that especially um, with chapter four that I just get that kind of sense really um, strongly because um, if you don't know Romans four, it, it's basically an argument that starts with the idea of um, Abraham and how Abraham believed even before um, he was circumcised or did anything right. Um, and Paul kind of lays out this argument of like you, um, uh, your faith or your belief is what uh, makes you righteous, not necessarily um, anything else, um, not what you do. And this is kind of 
uh, the really this chapter is kind of the precursor to that in many ways in that um, uh, God is saying to them, like, look, I'm giving you this land, but it's not like you're righteous. Like, it's right. not like you've done anything to earn this land. Like, you are um, actually completely the opposite of that. You're a stiff, stiff neck uh people group that have uh, had a lot of negative negative history with me and um the whole reason i'm i'm dispossessing this land is not even because uh i think you're you're all that and you deserve to be in this (laughs) land like it's actually because i'm just tired of all these um nations in this land being so evil um and i'm giving you a shot at it now and we'll see how it goes um but the the overarching theme of this whole um passage is God's grace like it Mm -hmm. never comes out and says grace but the the overarching thing is that like God is being very graceful to this people here in this time period and is saying even in spite of all the history that we're going to kind of like walk through very specifically and very literally like Moses takes time to even like talk about like certain things that he did when he came off the mountain um, and really get into the details of that whole story. Um, The whole reason for bringing all this detail up is to kind of really lay it on thick that God is being a super gracious God to this people group. And uh, if you need proof of that, let's kind of walk through this history of how awful you've been. Um, And that's, that, that's really where we're at with this chapter. That's exactly kind of the place that Paul takes as a starting point from like Romans one and two um, onwards throughout the whole book is that uh, uh, we existed in sin. And um, in specific, I think a lot of people think of it in terms of like more of like a metaphysical kind of sin. Um, But I do think that Paul is writing to a mixed group of Gentiles and Jews in Rome. And I think he's kind of reminding them of Deuteronomy when he's weaving the first couple chapters into chapter four by saying like, look, as Jews, you shouldn't be claiming any type of like holier than thou status for being Jews because uh, we can go back to our own books and kind of see that it, it like we started out just as bad as the yeah. gen- Gentiles did. I think that's a, that's a point that like gets missed a lot is I think the whole reason he brings up um, chapter one of how bad the Gentiles have gotten is because he's comparing them to the Jews and how bad they are through Deuteronomy and through all these old books. And it's, it's just something that I think we miss if we don't have Deuteronomy in our heads as sort of like a, a good framework for understanding the book of Romans. Not, to, uh, not again, to make this all about Romans. This isn't a Romans podcast, but um, it is something that I just feel um, really makes Romans pop a lot more when you read those first four chapters in specific, um, just seeing kind of the parallels and what's going on with Paul. Um, Speaking of points to get overlooked, I did want to bring this up because I feel like that nobody, well, I'm not going to say no one, but like a lot of people don't talk about it enough. But, you know, there's like this common idea that Moses goes up to the mountain, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he gets the tablets and he comes back down. But I feel like that we don't often mention the fact that he ends up fasting another 40 days and 40 nights because he sees, the, he sees the people sin and then he breaks the tablets and then he has to go lay prostrate before the Lord again and yeah. then fast the second 40 days before he nights. So it was really 80 days. That it he, really was. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, you know, like it's an interesting thing. Cause like, um, you know, we know 40 is kind of like a, a, a an ideal number. So, um, it uh, numbers in the old Testament are always really hard to like kind of boil down. What are they trying to say here? Are they trying to say it was literally 40 days? Are they trying to say something more uh, metaphorical there? But, um, the, the interesting thing is, uh, 
I think part of it is that um, uh, related to the New Testament again with Jesus going out into the wilderness and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights kind of becomes a um, a theme for anyone that is attempting to mediate between God and the sin of the world, you know? Like that's kind of why Jesus has to go through, you know, the 40 days and 40 nights is that he's he's beginning his ministry and the first thing he does in beginning his ministry is kind of enacting that kind of mediator role as a Moses-like figure that um, spends 40 days and 40 nights without food and drink for the purpose of petitioning God so that God will see his self-sacrifice and listen to God's, uh, and God will be more likely to listen to him um, because he's had this self-denial that's going on. He's dying to self in many ways in in that kind of fasting way. Um, And so, the um, the reason that Jesus is kind of ushered into this as the beginning of his ministry is that he's kind of taking on the role of Moses, right? Um, and uh, it's interesting because I I have found kind of to make this like very real for you, the listener. Um, I have found that like there are a lot of people in this world that have a lot to say negatively about the church, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of criticism about the church, but I haven't found a lot of people that have been willing to fast 40 days and 40 nights for the church and actually mm-hmm. petition God to be graceful to the church. I found a lot of people that uh, have been very hypercritical and have wanted things to change, but I've not found a lot of um, willingness to be self-sacrificial for 40 days and 40 nights you know, again, the, the, this being kind of more of a metaphor, but just being willing to be in that kind of sacrificial position for the sake of the church instead of just like heaping on more criticism. Uh, and that's something like uh, on my own personal journey, like I was definitely like um, a person that did that for a very long period of my life um, from early 20s into kind of like 25, like for the, those five years, uh, I was very zealous and very much a person that did not like what the church was doing and was very negative towards it. Um, and I never had this sort of like um, petitionary shepherding kind of mindset in which, oh, if I see these things that are being done poorly in the church, my response shouldn't be to heap on more criticism but my response should be to go to god and ask for forgiveness for them you know like i i I think that that's kind of an interesting switch that i see and i i I often wonder uh what our church would look like if we had more moses-like figures that were willing to do that as opposed to just kind of level on criticism and say well my church isn't doing this or it isn't doing that you know um and like i often even think like what would martin luther's story that launched protestantism have would have been like if he had been more likely to try and do that as opposed to um completely try and segregate from his congregation um again i i uh, that whole debate is not something that I'm willing to get into the weeds of, but it's just a, it's a question that I have is could there have been a better way if he had been more, um, more like Moses, I, I guess I should say, instead of more like, well, it's, it's going to be scripture or the highway kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's and, a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things where um, uh, I, I, I've, I've always wrestled with that kind of divide because me internally, I've always seen every divide of a church as a, um, um, as a something to mourn in a very severe way, um, especially considering like First Corinthians spends a whole chapter talking about how divisions in the church are awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just one of those things where um, I, I look towards our generation 
at this kind of turning point where we can either go the route of Martin Luther or we can kind of go the route of Moses. Um, and I would honestly prefer the route of Moses um, in almost every case, um, especially as just kind of uh, a response to um, a people group not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, so not not leaving that aside, I mean, like there's still like consequences for actions and like, you know, uh, God still <laughs> uh, sends this people out into the wilderness to die. So that is in a sense a segregation of sorts. But um, it's one thing that I think about a lot. Uh, as we work through the golden calf story, um, there are some interesting things that I wanted to bring up. One of the things is Moses is using the idea of the tablets getting broken here as a metaphor for how much they, the Israelites themselves have broken the covenant between God and them. And I haven't talked a lot about covenant, um, as just like a theme in this podcast. And it's something I want to kind of rectify a little bit is, um, Covenant is something that we do not use today. Uh, mm-hmm. Covenant's just a word that like you hear and then it kind of do your eyes glaze over a little bit because we just don't ever like enter into a covenant with people. That's not a sentence we would ever say in English. Um, and one of the things uh, about covenant um, is that uh, for the Old Testament people, that was honestly like the language that they lived and breathed is um, in, in our day and age, if we... Um, we kind of work off of promises. If a person uh, promises you that they're going to do X, they are going to do X. Um, We, uh, we kind of work off of like signatures, even like if you sign on the dotted line Mm -hmm. that you will pay back this loan, you will pay back that loan. Right? Like that's kind of where our, um, where our sense of security came in. Um, Covenants were sort of that in the old Testament Um, covenants were, a way in which two people would enter into an agreement. And it's actually interesting um, uh, in Abraham's time, at least what you would do to make a covenant with someone is uh, you would uh, take a bunch of animals and you would cut them in half, literally cut them in half. And in the Hebrew um, to make a covenant is actually to cut a covenant. If you were to translate it literally. And it means that because you literally cut animals in half and you put them on either side. And then the two people that are making the covenant walk through this, uh, basic, uh, um, uh, field of dead bodies, dead animal bodies, and you walk in the middle of them and you say um, to one another, may I become like these animals Mm -hmm. if I don't follow through on this covenant that I've made with you. Um, And the idea is basically that um, it's a promise uh, or of sorts, it's a very severe promise that um, we're making an agreement to do a certain thing for each other. And if we don't do that thing for each other, um, then um, we will have uh, really bad things happen to us. And it was a way of um, instilling security um, in whatever agreement was happening, right? If you needed someone to like follow through on their promise, that's what you did is you made a covenant. So it's not just like what we would do is we'd just make someone promise and we hope that they're going to uphold their promise. It's more severe than that. Like there's a sense in which like you go through this ritual, this very physical ritual to kind of instill in each party this um, guarantee of it being followed through. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, The only thing I can think of as close to this is kind of marriage, you know, Um, a marriage kind of has that kind of ritualistic. We we go through a lot of different rituals to have it enacted. And uh, there's this sort of like sense that if you divorce, there's going to be a lot of shame on both parties that happen if you 
divorce, you know, and that's the only thing I can really like relate it to in our modern culture. Um, but it has a lot more nuance. It wasn't over two people pledging to be with one another for, for the rest of their lives. It was usually like two people, uh, pledging not to attack each other, um, two people, uh, pledging to, um, use each other's land for farm croppings, all these different kinds of ways. It was just a way to get this extra sense of security. So the question you might be asking is then like, well, if that's like the covenant, why would God ever need to enter into a covenant with people? Like he doesn't need any extra sense of security, right? Like he doesn't need like to know that they're going to be faithful to him, right? Like what's the purpose of God entering into a covenant if the whole point of a covenant is to give you Security. That's a great question. And what I've really come to as an answer to that is that it's not really for God at all. It's for the people Mm -hmm. to get a sense of um, promise that God's always going to be faithful to them, which is a really beautiful thing when you think about it. Um, It's God really stepping into the way that they did um, contracts with one another and saying, okay, I'll play by your rules for a little bit, and I will enter into this agreement with you guys, even in kind of the same way that y'all already enter into agreements with one another. Mm, And um, I will do that with y'all, and we'll play that out, you know, Um, because that's how I want to work with y'all. I want to work with y'all in a way that's not you having to figure out how I work necessarily, but I am willing to... Um, the New Testament language will be condescend, but I'm willing to kind of step down into your way of doing things mm. and and exist in there. And the whole reason God's so angry in this story is because you can't even like follow a covenant that you would normally do with like your neighbors, you know, like yeah. and that's the whole reason that they're so stiff necked is um, you can't even do something that like I'm kind of condescending to do with y'all. Um, and uh, I think that this has a lot of powerful implications, especially yeah. for the New Testament is like. This is already kind of setting up the theme of God stepping down into human affairs and um, reducing himself to human affairs for the po- for the purpose of making himself more known, right? Yeah. Which that- is exactly what the incarnation is with Jesus. You know, like that's the whole reason Jesus became a man, you know, um, is kind of following on that theme. But yeah, you, you had something to say on that? Yeah, that kind of reminds me of another thing that I've read in Flood and Fury in, in Matthew Lynch. He brings up like different approaches that you can you can make to these different topics, topics mm-hmm. to these, you know, heart subjects about war. And he talks about how, well, one of the, the dangers to looking at those kind of concepts of, well, God is just someone that we can never really fully understand and we just have to trust him. And it's like, well, God also expects us to imitate him. And in order to be able to imitate him, then we have to have some type of understanding about who God is in order to be able to imitate him on a human level. And so like you bringing that up kind of reminds me of how God does that intentionally so that we are able to imitate him. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things where um, it's, it's actually helpful for us so that it's not just like, Uh, overwhelming in the sense you know of just who is God and like trying to figure out who is God and that whole question like um, he's by doing these kinds of things he's revealing himself Uh, and that's always been kind of a point that I love that Christianity makes over and against many other religions that attempt to keep their gods um, very distant and Mm -hmm. unrevealed um, is that even in the Old Testament you can see God sort of not playing by that rule and Mm -hmm very often um, willing to um, become bound by 
time and language even, you know, Um, and and that that is that is really what one of the most beautiful things. Uh, There's a question that gets asked a lot that um, uh, uh, about the Bible a lot of times that I think this applies to hardcore where um, uh, some people ask, well, why if God chose to communicate himself in the Bible, why is it that like we have to like do all this research to like understand it. Like, you know, why, why couldn't it have been more like obviously known? Um, like w- what's the reason for that? And I think one of the, one of the main reasons is that, well, 3000 years ago, it was communicated in that way. Like it was communicated in a very easy way. If you were an Israelite living 3000 years ago, you understood everything about the Bible because it was written in your context and you got it, you know? But one of the things that I've found is that, um, uh, over time, it's actually our disassociation with history, our um, uh, unwillingness even to remember, as mm-hmm. that's what exactly Deuteronomy says, never forget that this happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of been our, like, um, uh, kind of foray in the last 10 centuries, um, really from, like, the second century onward, where um, we sort of, like, said ah the jews like their story doesn't matter anymore it's all about gentiles and all that stuff it's really that has like landed us in this position where the bible has become so foreign to us Mm -hmm. and if we had been a people that had constantly remembered the old testament and constantly upheld the jewish story as the christian story that might not have happened you know we might not have come to the bible as this kind of uh uh thing that is so foreign to us today um but it's because we kind of divorced gentile and jewish kind of history from one another that that became such a big deal um and yeah uh, it's just something that i see a lot um today even is this kind of like oh um you know christianity is really a gentile religion not really a jewish religion so um, again that's a whole nother can of worms we can get into but it's just historically even i've seen a lot of that kind of play itself out in this way in which now um, as protestants we really open up our bible and read these types of passages and have such a uh, disconnect with their jewish meaning and that has led to a lot of misinterpretations and wrong wrong applications even in sermons and um teachings um that needs to be corrected i would say and where um again uh the whole point is uh, this is where i love paul is that paul is not trying to say it's now a gentile religion anymore that he's trying to say it's a jewish religion he's trying yeah. to make it a marriage between the two um and there's yeah. now no no longer any Greek or Jew, slave or um, master or male or female even, um, because all have been made one in Christ. So um, it's this kind of unification of all of that kind of coming to to work. And we in 2020 just have to work really hard to kind of unify ourselves back to that original story, as it were. Yeah, and I think it ruins relationship if God makes it that easy where he just kind of will just read the Bible if you want to know about me and that's it (laughs) and because I feel like that no relationship really works that way I feel like that it takes work and effort to get to know someone and to have an intimate relationship with him and I think that's relationship with anyone and I think that goes the same way with God I feel like that God wants us to be unified with him but that can't happen if we just only read the Bible and then that's it and we don't do anything else I think that he wants us to seek him out and to actually have a real relationship with him which has to do with like prayer or intercession 
which has to do with spending time in his presence. I think it's more than just, well, let me read this and make it easy for you because it just makes it easy for you to figure everything out yourself and to not have to talk to God because like, well, I just read the Bible if I want to figure him out. And I feel like it's just like relationship and intimacy. And I think that's just what it is. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, um, And I do think that that's a very modern thing to want to know everything before you take the step into faith, mm-hmm. you know? Um, like, even like relationally, like I feel like we want to know everything about a person before we like try and love them, you know, or try and commit to them as like even in friendship and stuff like that. We like, I find myself doing that all the time where it's like, I want to know how's this person going to respond in conflict or how's this person going to, going to respond. Like I want to like figure them out before I even like sort of take a step into actually having a relationship with them, you know, which is very like the inverse of what it should be, you know, where it's like uh, you, you can't figure them out until you actually have relationship with them, you know? And I think that's kind of what the Bible is. I think the Bible is kind of like God giving you a piece of who he is. So you get an idea of who he is so that you want more. Yeah. And I think that people are just like, well, I just want you to put everything in this Bible and then just leave it at that. So I don't have to waste my time doing anything else because it's just easier that way. But I mean, like any relationship worth having isn't going to be easy. So I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. And I think it's, I think it's, again, that sort of sense in which like you um, with the Bible, at least um, this is a point that Nick has brought home. Our, our teaching, uh, not <laughs> our uh, senior pastor here at the church. Um, he talks about this all the time is that um, you really, have to rest in the goodness of God as sort of like your security first before you then can start to develop that relationship with God. Because if you're just trying to start from like a blank slate with God, then a lot of the things that uh, you read or learn about God will feel very scary and off putting Mm -hmm. and um, will cause you to be thrown about um, by the winds of whatever recent passage you're reading and it's more helpful to always go into a text with the concept of God being good and Mm -hmm. that no matter what I'm reading today, no matter what I'm feeling today, you know, even, and your own emotions in that space, this relational deepening that you're having with God um, will always be a good thing, you know, like God's good and he will always take you by the hand and lead you um, and uh, it be good. And like starting from that position, as opposed to starting from like this sort of like, Oh, I've got to figure everything out so that God loves me, you know, yeah. um, that I feel like is um, uh, going to end in this kind of chaotic back and forth of desperate attempts to please God. Um, when you have to rest in that, truth that god is good and god loves you um i think i think that's really where it where it kind of boils down for me we are a little way off topic with this um (laughs) because like i mean in some sense like the the overall point of what i was getting at with all that covenant stuff is when moses breaks the tablets it's almost in in a sense like um one uh going back to this metaphor of the israelites should have been the ones cut in half right Mm because they're the ones that broke broke the covenant what moses does is kind of uh preambling what he's going to do with god is he actually breaks the covenant like he's like well if Mm -hmm. the covenant were to hold true y'all are all dead right now so what i'm going to do is i'm going to actually break the tablets you know and as 
like an indication and he brings it up like several times and I think he, he means to break it. Like it's it's sort of as if like because I'm breaking this covenant that God was gonna make with you there's going to be a new covenant that's going to be issued after this tablet is broken. And there's a whole actually like nerdy academic debate about like, was the original covenant that was on the tablets not going to include a lot of the stuff we got in Leviticus or not, you know, um, was actually like the original covenant. If they hadn't have done the, um, the golden calf story, like would that covenant have been like the covenant that, um, uh, just had God with them in their presence and they didn't need a tabernacle or a temple, you know, like we don't know. We don't really know. All we know is that Moses is essentially breaking the covenant that God had with Moses on Mount Sinai and Moses has to go back up on the mountain and he gets a completely new covenant. Now that's the covenant that we have in Leviticus numbers and all of the like really strict laws essentially. And that's something that I don't think it's taught a lot is that there was actually like a, a covenant before the covenant, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Um, and it's something that's like right here um, as, as really important. Although some people tend to like debate it back and forth. Um, I, I really do think that that's kind of what's being communicated here, even in the kind of hindsight reading of it. Um, and you can actually check out um, the Bible project podcast kind of, dives into that a little bit too so and speaking um, of the golden calf um i did want to bring this up because i didn't understand it at first and i feel like i have a better understanding of it now yeah so they break the he breaks the covenant and then of course what he does which it goes into more detail about this and i think in i think it's numbers i think it may have gone into details about it maybe um but what happens is that like he basically crushes the calf Yep. And then he basically takes the ashes of this golden calf and he spreads it in the water, which it says is here. But then what it says in the other book, and I can't remember if it's Numbers. Is it Numbers or is it Exodus? Or I think it's Exodus. Yeah, Exodus. Think, I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, so Exodus. And so um, he makes them drink it, though. That was the thing. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. why are they drinking like the ashes of this scattered calf that he made? And so I was looking at the Hebrew word for drink. And that word is also related to the concept of drinking God's wrath. And uh-huh. so I was like, oh, okay. Because what happens after they drink it is that they're given this command to basically kill the Israelites who were worshiping this golden calf. Yeah. And so the, the Levites end up being the one who does it. And that's the reason why they get set apart and become a people set apart for the Lord. And that's why the Levites get named that name and why they are the Lord's portion. And yeah. I was just like, that makes sense now. Like the fact that they were sort of like, it was like a figurative, not a figurative thing, but a literal thing that they were doing to represent the fact that they were drinking the wrath of God. So, Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually a theme that will take itself up all the way through Isaiah. We've There's a lot of episodes that we've gotten in our back catalog that talk about how um, the wrath of God is um, always usually related to a cup that's poured out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many, many cases, uh, the wrath of God is actually alcohol. And it causes people to become drunk and like swirl around and stagger and stupor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they drink this like cup of wine, basically, that's God's wrath. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a whole like nerdy kind of rabbit hole of like uh, getting into that. But I, I'm, th- that's definitely there. And that's good to point out. You asked at the very front of this episode, yeah. you asked like what... Um, why a calf? You know, yeah. like why? Why couldn't it have been? I was like, is that else? an Egyptian thing that they learned yeah. from Egypt or? What yeah, was- yeah. So, so one of the things interesting to that is um, anything to do with oxen in this period, uh, and this is again something that's kind of hard for our Western mindset. For us, we have cows in like a huge amount. Like calves are like kind of par for the course here. We have a huge meat industry here in America. Um, We eat a lot of meat, um, eat a lot of red meat. Steak is like very highly valued here. Um, And so um, oxen are um, 
grown a lot and they usually are grown in areas that have a lot of land like you need a lot of land to grow oxen because if you think about it they're big animals and they need um a lot of grass to eat and they need a lot of food to eat you've got to like put in your like you got to put in a lot of money actually to get a really good um uh like cow to have that on top of that they're the males of that uh, are very deadly like they can kill you pretty mm-hmm. easily there's like laws in leviticus actually about like your ox goring like your neighbor accidentally and what you do in those types of situations like um they're just very strong and so one of the one of the early early things that we know is that anything related to calves and oxen uh cows um in this culture at least um they associated that with rich um well off um, and strength. Actually, the Hebrew symbol for the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, um, in the old archaic Hebrew writing is um, uh, a, a symbol of oxen horns. And um, this kind of relates to the image of like uh, horns in like the books of Psalms in the in the Psalms. Uh, horns are always like an indication of strength. And it's this idea of um, the uh ox was kind of seen as like the embodiment of strength because if you think about it it's a very terrifying beast if, mm-hmm. if you're just like looking at like a, a, a bull and like see what it looks like it is terrifying you know like it's just like one of these things that's like a mountainous strength kind of uh ridden thing and so uh for their culture in particular um yes you're right there was a lot of egyptian deities that um kind of uh, worshipped um, deities that were all in the shapes of bulls. Um, I don't know if the Minotaur had become a thing mm-hmm. in Egyptian culture or not. That's something that I'd be curious. I know Minotaur is a Greek thing, but I don't know if they had like an equivalent to a Minotaur in um, in uh, Egyptian culture or not. But essentially, like the idea of like being half bull, half man, these types of like images were definitely became prominent later on. Um, and all of it kind of revolved around this idea of um, whatever is the most scary thing that can kill you. That's what I'm going to make a deity out of, if that makes sense, you know? So they made a deity out of like sea monsters in the sea. Mm-hmm. They made a deity out of um, bulls, you know, and calves. And um, I think the idea, especially with calves is a kind of related to fertility as well mm-hmm. um, because the more um, prosperous and this kind of ties into um, what we talked about last episode is that um, usually um, younger versions of whatever um, scary animal were more associated with um, that kind of fertility ritual of like abundance and prosperity um, like a baby um, uh, women in particular were often like idolized as like um, like uh, literally idolized like put into idol form mm-hmm. um, as sort of like a way of uh, showing like their fertility um, and like like their goddesses yes oh, their right. goddesses and things yeah. like that like um, uh, you know to be very like upfront like almost every idol of a woman in that culture is completely nude um, and the idea is that like it's showing off their like um, availability and their fertility and if you worship this thing um, that's going to happen to you too you know um, and so the idea with like progeny and younger children of like a strong ox like a calf for instance is kind of related to that kind of theme of oh it being the child of this kind of sexual union um, all that kind of probably played a part in their psyche and one of the things that I talk about a lot is that um, 
for uh, the Israelites, at least, they did not just set up a calf and worship a completely new God. What they did was actually far worse. What they did was they thought that the God on the mountain should be represented as a calf. And so they created a calf to worship the God that's on the mountain and thought that that's the image of God is um, this calf here. Um, And if you think about it from the logic of where they've come from, like, yeah, that all makes sense after I've kind of laid out everything, right? It's like, yeah, God's going to provide for them in this new land. He's going to give them fertility. He's going to give them, um, make them multiply in this new land. He's going to give them access to a bunch of cattle. He's going to give them access to milk and honey, right? You know, like milk. And so it's like all of that in their head, I think is kind of one of the reasons why they decided to go with that image overall. Um, it's just really harking in on all of the provision that God had given them in the wilderness and um, seeing God as sort of just like like all of these other Canaanite gods as kind of a, a fertility God, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a God that's going to give them this kind of provision in the land, but also has relationship to this like strong ox strength that can protect them from the Egyptians and things like that. So help, hopefully that makes sense to our modern mind. Does that, do you think that answers the question well enough? I think so. Okay, cool. Like I, I it, it's still, I'm still working through some of that. It, it's not like an open and shut case for me. Um, but I think that those are definitely some of the reasons, at least from the onset that you could like probably do some more research in. And I'm sure there's like papers that have been written on that um, as well that you can check out. Um, and maybe you'll find something that uh, contradicts uh, something I said. And I'd be really interested if you find something on that. Mm-hmm. Um also, uh, working through, we definitely need to kind of breeze through this last portion because uh, we're short on time here. But um, one of the things I did want to talk about is, again, um, this kind of concept of uh, the stiff neckness. I wanted to talk about that briefly. Um, one of the things that's interesting, and this kind of relates to your idea of them getting to drink the gold, um, is uh, the idea of them being a stiff necked people we again that's a phrase we don't use in english um i never really have gone to someone and say you're stiff necked i mean you think about that as a metaphor um even if you were to think about it literally the idea of being stiff necked means your neck doesn't move it doesn't turn Mm -hmm. and one of the things in hebrew is that the word for turn is also the word for um repent Uh, repent Mm -hmm. and turning are the same uh, word in Hebrew. And uh, so that's why actually you'll see some translations when it says God um, uh, uh, turned from what he was going to do in destroying the Israelites after the story of the golden calf. Some translations will actually say God repented um, mm-hmm. from the wrath he was going to give to them. Mm-hmm. And that's because the word is literally the same. The idea is that if you're a stiff necked people, you don't ever repent you know like that that's the concept here is you don't turn you can't turn um and uh it's this is actually a theme that gets picked up in um uh the book of ezekiel actually where um the wheels um are actually a weird kind of design where they they themselves don't turn and the idea is that like um this kind of structure is like representing God in some sense and it never repents from what it's set out to do essentially. And that's kind of like the metaphor that's getting, um, uh, used in Ezekiel one, at least is that it, it always goes the course that it's set out to go. Um, and so it's kind of one of those interesting things where, um, uh, for the Israelites, at least, um, this, being stiff necked literally means they're not going to turn and decide anything. They're just going to go the route that they were always destined to go, which is a really interesting kind of way of thinking about stiff neckness is just going down a preordained kind of path without ever repenting from your, from your like 
pre-designed kind of state. Um, and like thinking about that in terms of like how they are. Right. And that like, um, what God is craving for them to be is a people that do look to left or to the right and do really think about what they're doing instead of just kind of letting their passions and their flesh kind of, uh, preordain them to go down a certain road, right? And um, letting them instead be this kind of people that um, is repenting of things that they've done and turning back to the Lord. That'll become a theme in, in uh, the later books of the Old Testament, um, especially in the prophetic books, about if they just like repented, if they turned, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that's kind of the idea. But another thing that I, I thought was really interesting that was brought up, uh, brought up in a um, a book I read once um, that talked about how um, being stiff necked has a relationship to the very idol that they're creating, which the idols are immovable. Like uh, idols are stiff necked, right? Like a, a golden calf has a stiff neck. And so like, uh, relating it to the idea of them actually creating a thing that is very much the very same thing that they are themselves and what um, that means as like a people that are created in the image of God and are themselves supposed to be kind of the idols of God um, of a sort, like them being stiff-necked and them creating a thing that's also stiff-necked. Um, they kind of brought out this like theological principle of how humans always have this tendency to become the very thing they worship. And that is bad because uh, if they're worshiping anything other than God, right? And so they become the thing they worship, you know? Yeah, I had a question about something you said earlier. I guess this is a little bit off topic, but I was just curious. (laughs) Okay, so the the wheels on Ezekiel, like when it's, you're saying that it doesn't turn, because I remember that passage. Um, So you're saying that it doesn't turn to like some type of representation that God doesn't repent yeah. What he does? Well, it doesn't turn from what he's set out to do, essentially. Oh, okay. Because I was going to ask, like, how did that come into conflict with Jesus? With not Jesus, but God saying that He repented when He created mankind back in Genesis. Right, right. So I'm like, does that conflict? That's, that's the big question. <laughs> so Ezekiel is uh, sort of the book that most people point towards for a big fancy uh, word called the immutability of God, which just means that God never changes. And you might hear in like a um, uh, systematic theology class that that is one of the attributes of God is that God does not change. Unfortunately, there's also other passages that seem to argue for the complete opposite of that, you know, as, and those are the passages you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, the golden calf is actually one of those stories. Um, and so it's a really hard, how do we balance even Jesus changing his mind every now and then in terms of how that works out mm-hmm. in the new Testament with, you know, that kind of uh, depiction of God in Ezekiel. And this is something that I would like, we could dive into more on an Ezekiel podcast. But one of the things I, I bring up when I talk about Ezekiel is that Ezekiel is not um, the end all end all of who God is, but is who God is at the specific time at which he's dealing with the people of Israel at that specific moment. And at that specific moment, they have gone so far astray that Ezekiel is using that to communicate. I think the fact that even if they were to repent, like back in Moses's time, Mm -hmm. God wouldn't change from his course. Like he's going to give them the judgment that's happening in that case. Actually, the whole point is that uh, God takes the whole presence that he is and he moves it from Jerusalem and sets it up in Babylon now. And he's going to do a new thing now Mm -hmm. in Babylon and has completely left the people in Jerusalem to their own 
devices, basically, and to their own destruction. And so that's something that it's kind of Ezekiel seeing this vision of God in the specific time saying, I am an unchangeable thing at this moment where I am not going to deviate from this trajectory that I'm going down. And that is that we're going to move everything to Babylon now, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be there for who knows how long. And, um, well, I know, like God knows how long, but like they don't. And that's kind of the, the whole overarching theme of the book of Ezekiel is everything's kind of set in stone now and you need something new to kind of shake things up. And that's kind of, it's kind of one of the main points of the whole book. So keeping that in context with other books then becomes more about how God is in relationship to Moses and how God is in relationship to, like you said, Genesis. And it's something that you can't just take one book and build an entire systematic theology off of it Mm -hmm. and then not apply it to the rest of the context. So it's one of those things that I think, theologians will be wrestling with a lot whereas i don't think it needs to be honestly i just think it has to it has to do with a particular time and place Mm -hmm. and how god was operating so maybe that makes sense as as a short answer we could we could spend a long time going through ezekiel and how that works out but yeah um interestingly uh i want to move through this quick um one of the things that gets mentioned at the very end is also just the other instances of God getting test, uh, tested by the people of Israel at um, Tibera and at Masa and Kibroth Hata'ava. Um, all of these places are places that um, uh, the Israelites complain against um, the Lord for not giving them water or food. Um, and it's just like this long case of different um complaints that the Israelites have um, towards uh, God. Um, you can go read about those in Numbers and Exodus. Um, they're really sad stories, but um, they kind of, uh, it's not just about the golden calf, I guess is what I'm saying. They have a history of them uh, them always complaining, and it's something that uh, um, is always a part of their story uh, as they work their way. But the big one that kind of Uh, sends them into the wilderness where they end up dying off actually is um, what happens at Kadesh Barnea. And this is where um, they go up to the land initially and they send out these 12 spies that see out the land and they see the Anakites there and they see how strong the walls are and they get super scared and they decide instead of doing what God said, we're going to go mutiny against Moses and go back to Egypt. And so they literally like form a coup and try and, dispossess um, Moses from his leadership position and Aaron and just try and march all the way back to Egypt. And that's when God uh, has had enough and decides to send them into the wilderness for 40 years. And so uh, that's kind of where uh, Moses kind of ends this chapter is like, this is kind of where what happened 40 years ago and y'all have the same opportunity now <laughs> you know like we are, we're at that point again um we're looking out over the land of canaan again 40 years later and we see the anakites here again and now you have a choice you know you have a choice mm-hmm. to follow in the steps of your fathers or you can trust in the lord mm-hmm. and that's kind of where he ends the chapter on um is reminding them of their negative history with god and what are they going to do are they going to choose life or are they going to choose death Um, And remembering that as the most important thing really into the New Testament even is like that that choice really is what's going to dominate a lot of Paul um, in Romans as well. So did you have any like closing uh, thoughts or remarks on all that, Ashley? I know we kind of had to breeze through the ending part. So, yeah, 
I thought this was the longest chapter we've done so far. It was pretty long. <laughs> it was pretty long. I did not think it was going to be this long, but I felt like that we, especially you, had a lot more to say than I thought. And I was just like, I think that just goes to show how much is compacted in it and how yeah. much you can get out of it. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I'm curious just as far as like word count because it felt long reading it too. So I don't know. But um, thanks, guys, again for sticking with us through this whole episode. And I hope you got something really insightful out of this as always. And uh, I, I said this last week, but uh, I hope something uh, in this was challenging for you as well. Um, we always appreciate you guys listening. And, um, if you guys ever get the chance, um, you can always support whatever we do by going to wayfarerscc.com and, uh, you can check out, uh, what we do at our church here and, um, feel free to, um, uh, give as your heart inclines. There's actually like a donate page that you can do as well. If you guys want to support what we're doing. So we'd love that as well. Thank you so much. And, uh, we'll be back in your feed again next week. Bye-bye. Bye.